Sermon on the Mount. So I guess you would call this Jesus' <clears throat> authority, part two, and dealing with anger. So let's read uh, verses 21 through 26. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, coming out of the NASB translation. And the scripture reads, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you. You will not come out there until you have paid up the last cent. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word, God. Thank you for inspiring men to write this word down, Lord God, and that you kept it and watched it over generations and over time, Lord, that it's preserved right here for us to see your truth, God, to see how you spoke to the people, God, to get words of truth, Lord. Thank you, Lord. God, I'm praying right now, Lord, that you just illuminate the eyes of my brothers and sisters, God. Bring them to a truth, Lord, in your word, God. Speak to their heart, Lord, as you've been speaking to mine throughout the week, God. Show me your glory in your word, Lord, God. Show me the beauty of obedience. Touch my brothers and sisters, Lord, God. Ah, Lord, it is you, it's you, Holy Spirit, that illuminates the scriptures to where we get it and see it and behold it. So help my brothers and sisters, not just read your scriptures, but behold you in the scriptures. In Jesus name. Amen. amen. So here we're continuing again as on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking on uh, anger. But let's kind of recap what we went over last week. And last week we looked at how Jesus, uh, he was uh, speaking to the scribes and Pharisees or speaking about the righteousness of the scribes and, and Pharisees. And we were seeing how in verse 20, he was charging the people that their righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And we looked at how that's a tall order because the scribes and the Pharisees were considered to be the most righteous of that time. So that was a, that was a huge, tall challenge there. And so we looked at that. We also seen how the Pharisees and the scribes based their righteousness on law keeping and keeping the traditions of their fathers. And we looked at how Jesus challenged their traditions by speaking with authority, smikha, remember that term smikha, and giving a new teaching and new interpretation to the laws of Moses. We also looked at how Jesus' interpretations or Jesus' new teaching with anger makes everyone a lawbreaker in need of mercy because he puts anger with a brother on par with murder. And so we're all guilty there. And so uh, before we move on in this main text in 21 to 26, I kind of want us just to speak a little bit more about this sweetha, this authority that Jesus uh, has, that he spoke. Remember, sweetha was that Jesus was giving new teaching. He was giving teaching that was unlike any other. 
Jesus was not leaning on the status quo or the tradition or the traditions of the father when he spoke. Remember, that's why the crowds and that's why the scribes and Pharisees, they always had this interaction with Jesus because he wasn't saying the same thing that they've been taught. See, Jesus was not leaning on the status quo, but he was speaking from within himself. And because his mission was to do the will of his father, Jesus would say that the words that he's speaking, the command that he's speaking, he's speaking with speak high with authority. But he said that the words that I'm speaking, they're, they're not my words. But they are the commandments. They're the word of God. He tells us that in John 12, 49, where he says, for I do not speak on my own initiative, but the father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. So Jesus is speaking with smihai, speaking with authority, but his words are the word of God. But because his teaching was different from what they heard because his teaching was different from the traditions and what they heard, they thought it was strange. They didn't like it. Matter of fact, that's taking it lightly to say they thought it was strange. They thought it was blasphemy. They thought it was heresy, the words that Jesus was speaking. And guess what? That is exactly how the world considers Jesus' teaching today. They believe the teachings of Jesus, his word. They see it as strange. They see it as weird. His morality, his thoughts on marriage, on on money, on hell. They think his teaching is strange. And guess what? If you, as a disciple of Jesus, keep his teaching, guess what? The world is going to think that you're strange. The world is going to look at you how they looked at Christ in here. It's a blasphemer as somebody's teaching some strange doctrine. And because this teaching in the world looking at us funny, um, there's going to be a temptation in our flesh to want to go with the status quo. There's going to be a, a temptation to want to abandon the teachings of Jesus. That is why he tells his disciples in John 15 to abide in him and keep his word. Because as you keep going over in John 16, he starts talking about all the persecution that's going to come their way as he keeps going forward. He's telling them, you have to keep my word. You have to abide in me. Keep my commandments because the world is going to come after you and you're not going to want to keep it. There's going to be a temptation to want to stray away because the teachings of Jesus is so countercultural that there's this temptation in our flesh to want to go away. See, what you have to understand, when Jesus was speaking here and he's given this new teaching, his teaching, to follow Jesus' teaching here, it's going to require a lot of risk. It required a lot of risk of his disciples to take Jesus' smiha, his authority, his teaching on the scriptures. Because think about it, as a Jewish, first century Jewish person, for years and years and years, generation, generation, there was a commonly accepted teaching on the scriptures in Moses. You had a teaching that the rabbi spoke. You, the same teaching that you had, your father probably had, your great-grandfather had. All of that was the same thing. It was a status quo. And now you have this person coming here and giving a new teacher that your religious rulers don't approve of. See, that takes risk. To say, I'm going to trust your smihai, Jesus. I'm going to trust your authority on the scriptures. And I'm going to follow you even though my society does not accept your interpretation. They don't accept your teaching. See, this is what happened with uh, 
the parents of the blind man that was healed. I want to show you this. Look at go to John chapter nine. John chapter nine. I want you to go to verse 20. As my pastor would say from my previous church, he said, I love to hear those pages. (laughs) So keep that thought that I was saying. Jesus is coming in. He's giving new teaching, new interpretations to the laws of Moses that goes against the status quo, that goes against the society at that time. Generation after generation, you heard same teaching, similar teaching, and now you got somebody new coming in and he's telling you something different that goes against what your grandma said, what your grandpa said, what your auntie said, what your cousin said, what your rabbi at synagogue says. He's going against what they have been teaching you. So that takes a lot of risk. And I want to show you the, the parents of the blind man. They felt that because here I want to show you what happened. Jesus goes and he heals a blind man. And so the, the, the religious establishment, they call in the guy's parents because they want to see what's going on. And so they call in the guy's parents and they ask the parents, you know, was he born blind? Yes, he was born blind. And, and look at their response here. I want to show you their response when they were called before the religious establishment here. 20, let's go with uh, 20. Matter of fact, I said 22 or 20. Look what his parents said here. His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. 22. His parents said this because they were afraid, what? Of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Messiah Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So do you see what's happening here with his parents? The parents are like, we're not going to go against the religious establishment. We're not going to go against the status quo. No, I mean, see, the parents, they don't want to break ties with the status quo because breaking ties is going to risk them something. They can't go to synagogue anymore. If they break ties and say this about Jesus, that he's the Christ, they can't go in the synagogue no more. They're going to be ostracized by their society. You see what's happening here? If they stand with Jesus, they're going to be ostracized. They're going to be pushed out. And that's the same thing that happens with us today. If we stand with the word of God, if we stand with Jesus, guess what? You are going to be ostracized by science. You're going to be ostracized by society. You're going to be ostracized by a higher education. You're going to be ostracized by the next philosophical reasoning. As you stand with Jesus because his teaching goes against the culture. And that is why he was a threat here. And that's why they're bothered by this new teaching that Jesus is giving. So you got to understand, when you trust in Jesus' authority, when you trust in his smikha, his authority to speak into your life, his authority to give teaching, you are being a rebel. You are being a rebel. You are being countercultural as you trust in Jesus' word, trust in his authority that what he is saying is truth, his smikha. So I wanted to bring that to us just before we get into these scriptures, because it's important to understand what we're up against. 
the teachings that we have here in this Bible and Jesus' words here, even on the Sermon on the Mount, it goes against the culture. But we're trusting in Jesus' authority that his teaching is right and true. And so that's where we're placing our faith. So now in, our, in, in 21, our, our text here, we see that Jesus in verse 21, he said that you have heard that it was told that the ancient show um, that you should not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. So Jesus is going after the commandments that I shall not kill. And he's, and he's showing how anger and murder, he's, he's equating them on the same page. And we looked at how last week by Jesus doing this, he poked a pin in the self-righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees who thought that they were holy because they didn't murder anybody. Remember, we talked about how like last week, people think that they're good people because they haven't murdered. They haven't stole anything. I pay my taxes. I take care of my kids. I go to work on time. I, I stop at red lights. And so we believe because I do these different things, I'm good, I'm deserving of heaven. But we see that Jesus here, he's showing us the righteous standard of the kingdom of God, that even anger and murder on the same page. And so we see that he is now equalizing the ground, the field, and putting everybody on the same page by saying that. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Now, some of you Bible scholars, as I say that, something should be coming in your mind right now. Jesus is saying that, but I say to you, if anyone is angry with his brother, he will be guilty before the court. Something should be coming in the mind of the Bible scholars. What should be coming in the mind of the Bible scholars is, but didn't Jesus get angry? Hold on. Jesus is saying here, if you're angry with your brother, then you'll be guilty. And it's like murder. But didn't Jesus get angry? Some of my Bible scholars should be thinking. And didn't Jesus, when he entered the temple courts, go in and start flipping over tables, as it says in Mark 11, and start kicking people out? See, I think sometimes we, we, we try to picture Jesus as this guy just, just so nice and just prancing around and just skipping and just smiling everywhere. When Jesus was flipping over tables, he's not smiling. He's, he's speaking. What he, he asked, he's angered. There's not a smile on his face. And another place I want to show you where Jesus is angry is, is Mark. Go to Mark chapter 3. Mark 3. It's another place where we encounter Jesus being angry. Mark 3, chapter, I mean, chapter 3, verse 1. I hear those pages. I hear them going. All right, here we go. Let's see what it says here. It says, he entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. Okay, so Jesus entered into the synagogue. There's a man who's with a withered hand there. It says, they were watching him, who the religious establishment, to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. So that they might accuse him. Verse three says, and he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to him, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath to save a life or kill? He's posing a question, but they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. Again, it says after looking around them with anger, with anger, grieved at their 
hardness of their heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Six, the Pharisees went out and immediately, immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So why is Jesus angry here in the scriptures? He's angry at the hardness of their hearts. That, that, that is the point of his anger. He's, he's angry at the hardness of their hearts. And to get a better understanding of this anger, we have to look at Matthew 12, because Matthew 12 gives us the same situation, but it gives us a little bit more detail. We're going to look at it from a different vantage point to see if we can get more information to why Jesus was so angry with these religious establishment folk. So go to, go to Matthew 12. Same story, same situation, just told from a different vantage point here. This is Matthew. Look at verse 11. We here? Getting us a different vantage point. And it says, And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on a Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Right. How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So now we should have a little bit more fuller understanding of why Jesus is so angry with this religious establishment. Do you see why he's, why he's so angry here? He, he's angry because he said that if, if you have a sheep and your sheep falls into the ditch on the Sabbath, you're finna go fetch that sheep out. You're finna go get it. But now we have a person made in the image of God, feeling the effects of the fall of sin with a withered hand, and you're mad because I'm healing him? But if your sheep is in a ditch on a Sabbath, you will go and get it out? But this person made in my image, made in the image of God, is it needs a healing. And, and you care more for your sheep than you do th- this man. You see, th- that's why Christ is angry here. D- do you see what's going on here? And, and let me detour just, just a little bit. And some of you are going to get mad at me for what I'm about to say. But this is my, my, my beef with our pet loving society. <laughs> I'm just speaking on the scriptures here. This is Jesus with sheep. This is not. (laughs) They have doggy spas now. (laughs) You can take your dog to a spa for rest and relaxation. (laughs) Your dog. I looked it up. It says that Americans, this is from 2015, Americans spend more than $60 billion a year on their pets. And there's people in our world that go without the basic necessities of life, but yet we're spending $60 billion on Fido or Fufu or whatever you call your dog. But I'm saying, but do you see Jesus's point here? Why he is so bothered with their religious system here? I'm just 
See, what we must understand with this society is that this was an agrarian society. This was a farming society. So a sheep, you got to understand that this was an investment. And they didn't just probably have one sheep. They had many sheep. A sheep was their investment. So this, this means that we're talking about commerce here and money. And it shows us that they were more concerned with their investments, more concerned with their finances, more concerned with their money than meeting a need of a person. Let me put it in the modern day context. Sometimes we get so concerned with our money, so concerned with our cars, so concerned with our materialism that we don't go and meet the needs of others. See, it's the same thing. It's so easy to to lift up our nose at these people, but we are so guilty of the same thing. Well, we use our money and our funds for all different types of reasons, and yet there's tons of needs out there, but we don't want to meet those needs. We want to think about ourselves. And that is what's happening here with the religious establishment. They are thinking about self. They're thinking about their own preservation. They're thinking about their own self, and they're not looking at this person over here with their withered hand in need of a healing. So this is why Christ is so grieved. He's grieved of the, the lack of love for human life. That is why he's so grieved. And the thing about it is that Moses never said you couldn't help anybody on the Sabbath. But again, like we said, that is the tradition of the fathers. That is the tradition that they're upholding. And because of their tradition, they're missing the love that should be shown to a brother or sister in need. And that is Jesus' problem here. All right, That's why he's mad with them here. Because they're honoring their traditions. But they're not loving their neighbor as themselves. But they're keeping the traditions of the father. Their fathers. And so that is why Jesus is angry here. See, Jesus' anger is probably the same anger that some of you felt last week. Or not feeling right now. Last week when you left church and you went home and you cut on the news and you seen that a person went and shot up a church However many, I think 20-some people died. See, I'm like you. I felt the anger. I felt the frustration as I'm looking at this. Like, God, why is this happening? This is your church. And he goes in and he shoots people, little babies, pregnant women with life inside of her. And he goes and the guy just shoots I felt anger. I'm, I'm, see, that's that's the same anger that Jesus has with this religious establishment. That's the same anger that caused him to go and flip over the tables when he walked into the temple court. So I want you to compare that anger, that righteous indignation, to the anger that has been stressed here in Matthew 5. See, the, the anger in Matthew 5, you got to understand when he says that, but I say to you, I'm sorry, I'm not in, I'm there in Matthew 11, but the anger that's being stressed here in Matthew 5, 22, when he says, whoever's anger with his brother, verse 21 shows us that it's in the context of murder. And what is murder? Murder is intentionally doing something or intentionally harming a person. So, so anger is like murder. See, Murder is the, or anger is the seed of murder. That's the point that he's he's bringing out here. Because you're you're trying to destroy. 
So, so when he says anger here, it's in the context of harming. It's in the context of saying and doing things to destroy and bring down. That's the anger that he's talking about here. It's not the anger that we just looked at, but it's the anger with the intent to harm. It's the anger with the intent to destroy, to bring down. And this is further evidenced by verse 20, uh, the, the next part of this verse, where he says, and whosoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, it's the word raka there, that word means empty headed. Or it's like calling your, your, your brother a, a bonehead, basically. So that, that's the word here, it's, it's raka, it's like saying you empty headed, you bonehead, or something like that. So he's saying whoever says that, are you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And then he says, whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So when you look at these words, these words are said in the context of murder. These words are said in the context of intentionally trying to hurt and destroy a person. That's the anger that he's talking about. See, when we were in our spats with people, I like to say were because sometimes as Christians, we don't like to say are because sometimes we act too holy and sanctified like we, everything we did was in the past. So I'm going to say when we were in spats with people and when we get in spats with people, guess what? When we say different words and angers, our intention is to hurt. We're saying words because we're trying to strike a wound. We're trying to do something because we're so massive. We're, we're saying these words intentionally trying to bring harm to a person just like murder see that is where murder and anger cross over that is where they cross paths because they both have this 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 mindset of wanting to bring harm wanting to bring destruction anger is that seed of murder see some of you probably didn't even know how close you were to bringing violence to a person when you were angry because the same seed that goes and makes a person go and shoot out and cause harm and beat a person, that same anger seed is in you. See, you have no idea, like my sister was saying earlier today, from the things that you would you were thinking the thoughts before. You, you thought those wrong and nasty thoughts in anger. You, you thought thoughts of wanting to bring wrath and destruction, but it was just by God's grace that you didn't actually go and carry out the things that you were thinking, but you had those thoughts. And it started with anger. See, you're not as far away from the people that you think are so messed up in the first place. I often tell the story of my, uh, the, the pastor of my old church, how he would say he, he had this problem with this guy, and in his anger, he, he went to the bar, he grabbed his pistol, and he went to the bar to where this guy was at, and he was going to bring him harm. He was so angry at what he did to him that he went to the bar with his gun and was ready to bring harm to this man. But when he got to the bar, he says that the guy who's normally there was not there. <laughs> And he realized how that was just God's grace upon him because he has now been pastoring for more than 30 something years. He never would ever pass it. He would have been locked up behind bars. See, it was God keeping him. See, he had the anger that would have brought out the murder in him. See, he would have done the act, but it was just God. So some of you got to think on your life. You had those angry thoughts. You were close. You don't you don't know how close you were to doing that act you was going to do. That act, that wrong thing, that thing of bringing violence. 
And so when we're looking at this text, though, and we're seeing that Jesus is saying, you good for nothing. And he's saying, you fools, you can read this text and say, Jesus, that's kind of petty. You're over here parsing words, Jesus. These are just words. And you got to think about it. This is the first century Rome. This was a barbaric society. They crucified people. They try to they put people in arenas and and thought it was a spect made them a spectacle of having animals gouge them and and gladiators and lions and they did all of this wrong stuff and here comes good old Jesus talking about words saying that if I say these words I'm on par with a murderer see Jesus knows something that we all know to be true and that is that words can kill Words can destroy. Your tongue is a weapon. Now, a murderer, a murderer, his weapon may be a gun or a knife, but guess what? Our tongue, our weapon oftentimes is our tongue. That's why the tongue throughout scripture, the mouth is described as a sword. I want to show you this. Go to Revelations 19. Revelations 19. And look at verse 15. Where? And this is Jesus. He's leading God's heavenly army. And look what it says about him right here. It says, from his mouth comes a what? Sharp sword. So that with it, he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the almighty. Look at verse 21. Same uh, chapter. It says, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's the mouth is it's been a sword. We also have Hebrews 412 that call, that compares the word of God to a double edged sword, a sword, the word of God, a sword. You also have James. Then James 3, 5, he says that the tongue, he says the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. So James says the tongue is like a fire, something that brings destruction. James also says that the tongue is restless and evil and full of deadly poison. James 3, 8. Proverbs 15, 4 says a soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perverse and perverse and it crushes the spirit. But a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. So what are we seeing at our mouth, our tongue, the words that we say, they can bring destruction. So don't get caught so much on the actual words. But Jesus is talking about the intent and the spirit of the words that we're saying. He starts off by comparing it with murder. So Jesus is talking about words we say with the intent to bring harm and to destroy people. Our mouth. What we say matters. What we say matters. And some of you know this firsthand. You know this firsthand because, yes, you have been on the giving end of a tongue lashing in anger. 
but you've also been on the receiving end of a tongue lashing. And some of you are still wounded right now. Some of you are still wounded right now from what was said to you as a child. It's not a life matter. It's the truth. Some of you can still remember what somebody said to you in anger when you were a child. And guess what? Right now you are still walking with a limp. Words like you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You don't have the right body. You will never be nothing. These wounds either are these words either wounded us deeply to where we're still walking with a limp or they have consumed us to where we have spent the bulk of our lives trying to prove them wrong. Words. These words said in anger. That's why Jesus is bringing this out. The Lord knows the power of words and what it does to people, how it destroys people. Words said in anger. Destroying. And so my encouragement to you who were the target of those fiery words where you're still walking with a limp, where you're still bothered, where those same words that were said to you in anger are affecting you right now, even in adulthood. My encouraging words to you is that there is a God who is madly in love with you. There's a God who is madly in love with you, whose thoughts about you are more than the sand of the sea. There's a God who is madly, madly in love with you. I love how my brother, uh, I say my brother like I know him, but um, Paul Washer, um, in describing the relationship between Christ and the church and the love that God has for the church, he, he shows in the, in the Song of Psalms, uh, uh, it's chapter uh, 4, verse 9, um, Matter of fact, let me just say this. Song of Psalms, people look at Song of Psalms, Solomon, uh, different ways. Um, some see it as a straight analogy. Some see it as just a relationship between a man and a woman. An Orthodox Jew will see this, uh, Song of Solomon as um, an analogy of God's, of God's love for Israel. But since we know that Jesus says that all of the, the law, the prophets, and the writings are about him, we know that that relationship is between Christ and the church and so um, in, in Psalms 4.9, I just want to read this to you. Not Psalms, I'm sorry, Song of Solomon. I want to read you this just to encourage my, my brothers and sister who, who feel so wounded but need to understand and know this. Song of Solomon, verse 4, 9. It says this. You have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You have made my heart beat faster with a single glance. Of your eye. Some of you men and women know that moment when you met your spouse and you had those butterflies and how just one glance of them looking at you, how it made you feel, how it changed the rhythm of your heartbeat. And, I, and I, my brother Paul Washington was describing how that that's the love. That's how God feels towards us, the church. 
When we come to God, he said it changes something about the rhythm of God's heartbeat. When when the church comes and pursues God and, and, and prays and, and worships him, when the church turns their eyes towards Christ, it, it does something to the rhythm. And that's your soul love that God loves it. See, he, he loves you. He, he loves when his bride comes and, and looks at him and, and seeks him. See, that's how loved you are of God. He said it, it makes his heart change the rhythm. It, it beats faster. See, you are so loved by the Lord. You got to know this when you're, when you're trying to heal these wounds of, of, of words said in anger and, and, and thoughts said in anger and actions of people. You got to know how loved you are. You have to behold the love of Christ. See, it's, it's the love of God that heals those open wounds that was brought by that tongue lashing, by that thing done or said in anger. See, words matter, my brothers and sisters. Words matter. So in our text here in 23, Jesus explains the words about how powerful they are, the result of what happens when we uh, say them, what can happen. But in 23, he says this. He says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. And then if you keep going down in verse 25 to 26, he's using a different scenario, but coming to the same point. The point that we're seeing from 23 to 26 is reconciliation. That's the point that Jesus is bringing, reconciliation in his creation, reconciliation between men and women, reconciliation between the one who's offended and the offender. And he shows us what happened in his text when we don't reconcile. He said there's judgment coming and that you will pay every cent of the debt that is owed. So when you, when you look at these, this text that Jesus here, he starts off with anger in verse 21. Then he proceeds from anger and moves to words, and he concludes with peace and reconciliation, which is the ultimate objective of what he's... See, this peace and this reconciliation is almost the exact opposite of the murder that he starts with in verse 21. See, he's moving us and bringing us to this place where he wants us. He wants us pursuing peace and reconciliation with one another. And he said, before you even bring your gift to the altar and offer up your sacrifice, that is first things first, peace and reconciliation. But some of you are saying, but brother Jerome, you don't understand what that word that that person said to me. You don't understand that the action that they did to me. And now you're telling me that I'm supposed to just drop what I'm doing. I love going to church. I love worshiping. I love doing those things. And you're telling me, no, I need to put that and go and, and bring peace with this person. Yes. As believers, my brothers and sisters, we are always, we always have to take the high road. Because you see in this text, who's the one going and bringing a reconciliation? It's the believer. It's the person of God, whether we are the one that's offended or we have been received the offense. We are the one that seek reconciliation and peace. That is our position as children of God. That's our position. 
And the reason we take that position is because of beatitude number seven. Remember I told you how beatitudes, they set us up for all of Jesus' teaching. What does beatitude number seven say? Blessed are the what? Peacemakers. For they shall be called the sons of God. That is why we pursue peace. That is why even when we've offended or we've been offended, we pursue peace. We pursue reconciliation. Why? Because we are children of God. And that's what the Beatitude says that children of God do. They are peacemakers. They go and they pursue peace. We're peacemakers. If you remember in our study of the Beatitudes, this is the one verse where it says you're really looking like your daddy when you do this. He says, you will be sons of God as you pursue peace and be peacemakers. It's kind of like you ever had those parents when they, when they say, that girl, when she says that word, she sounds just like her mom. Or when he says that, boy, you look like your dad when you say that. My mom will always say to me, Jay, you sound like your dad. <laughs> My brothers and sisters, when you become a peacemaker, you look just like your Abba. You look just like your heavenly father. And guess what? If looking like your heavenly father is not motivation enough, here's the secret. You haven't always been holy. You were an enemy of God. You were a rebel of God. You have not always been saved. You were pursuing all the things of this world. You were pursuing money, riches. You were pursuing the fun things. You were doing all of these things. You have not always been holy and sanctified. You were an enemy of God. But God pursues the enemy. He takes the high road. The onus should have been on us to go and pursue peace and reconciliation. But God chooses to take the high road. He takes the burden upon us. He pursues the one who offended See, we forget how messed up we were. And if you don't believe you were really that bad, that you were such an enemy of God, let me show you how the Bible describes you. In Romans 3, it says this, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of Alps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul doesn't tone it down here. Guess what, my brothers and sisters? You fit somewhere in those verses. The whole world fits somewhere in these verses. So we were enemies of God. There was no peace. There was no reconciliation at the point. We were rebels, but it was God who pursued us in the midst of our rebellion. He took on the burden. He took the high road. He reconciled us to himself. He sent his son. God pursued us when we offended him. This is why Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace 
with God through Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 10, 4. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So if God can pursue us, the enemy that rebelled against him, then who are we not to offer up peace to others? Who are we not to pursue reconciliation? Are we better than they? We were enemies of God. Peace came to us because of Jesus. So we must offer up this peace. We must offer up this reconciliation, whether we offended or were offended. So my brothers and sisters, we have to mortify this anger. We have to speak words of life to one another that build up, not tear down. We have to pursue peace and do things that bring about life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for being the peacemaker. We thank you for in the midst of our rebellion, our angry murderer's heart, yet you still chose to have mercy upon us and pursue us and bring us into your embrace. We praise you, God, for your mercy and goodness. God, thank you for giving us these words of life, words of the kingdom, true righteousness. Thank you, Lord God, for your goodness. We want to be like you, peacemakers, bringing words that build up, not tear down. Saying words, God, in a happy spirit and not with an angry, murderous heart. Thank you for pursuing us with peace in the midst of our rebellion. In your son's Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.